The James Webb Space Telescope was specifically designed to see the first stars and galaxies that were formed in the universe. So we're going to see the snapshot of when stars started, when galaxies started, the very first moments of the universe. And my bet, there's going to be some big surprises. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all humankind. Your hosts in England and the Netherlands. Matthew Russell and Julio Prayer. Oh yeah, baby, John Grunsfeld. All right, all right. Hello, Matt. Oh, hi, Julio. How are you? Good. It feels like it has been yesterday, and it also feels like it has been forever since the last time I know we recorded. I know. It's been very, very busy in Matt world. It's chaotic and busy. So you've got to bear with me, listeners. I've got, but I've the got... last time we recorded, we had a marathon recording of oh, yeah. multiple oh, yeah. hours. Exactly. So, the... and one of those, one of those interviews from that multiple hours, is going to find its way into uh, today's episode, Julio. So, first, let's give some context, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, a few weeks ago, there was the ESA Open Day, which is an annual event, which is somehow how I ended up getting to know you, Matt, mm. because I discovered your podcast where you did an episode. When you visited with yeah. Jamie a few years ago, and you That's recorded right, yeah. a bunch of astronauts, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so this is an annual event, and this year, yeah, it was done again in two days. One with in, with people present there, and the other one uh, an online. So you and I recorded a series of interviews with different ESA experts, and today, I mean, we will be using some of those interviews, and today specifically. We will be focusing on two interviews back to back that were focused on the James Webb. Because let's face it, now that we're on the so close to that launch, mm-hmm. there's a lot of content that we need to discuss about James Webb. Uh, yes, indeed. Be, the hype could not be bigger. No, on no, this no. Topic. I, I must admit, Julio, I was very jealous because you seem to be able to see the pictures of James Webb in Guyana before anyone else, right? Well, at the, sa- at the same time as my colleagues. <laughs> well, yeah, but the but difference like, is the difference but, is that <laughs> at, at on a Friday at eleven p.m. I happened to be in my computer, so I, I like to think that at least on the European side, I was uh, yeah, I, I saw them right right when they arrived, fresh yeah. freshly arrived. But of course, I, I have colleagues uh, working in Kourou, uh, including the photographers that obviously saw them first. Mm. You know, I don't like to claim first to anything. I know you. You, 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 you first love records, or biggest? Don't you? Or, no, 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 no. But yeah, I, I have to say, you're undoubtedly the biggest and the best podcaster from Argentina who appears on a space podcast regularly. Is that enough? Is that is that specific enough, or maybe not even? Mm. No, not not well. I don't know any English-speaking ones, but there are some very good Spanish-speaking podcasts that I could I could not light a candle to. Oh, what? We have some very capable people out there. No, you have to, you have to stay humble, Matt. You have to stay humble. <laughs> true. Anything you very do, true. someone else will have done it first. Yeah. Anything you're good at, someone else will be better. Yeah. Well, it's like Neil Armstrong can't even claim to be the first person on the moon because Buzz was there with him as well. There we go. Yeah, See? I know. I know, you, I, I know you love that one. Um, so yes, um, James. Yeah. <laughs> so talking of James Webb, one of the sort of milestone 
moments was this week, wasn't it? Because without this Ariane 5 launch, VA255, it would be much delayed, correct? Am I right in saying that? Or it would probably be delayed if there was a, if there was a problem with that launch? There were, there were no problems with this launch. Let's start with that. Um, there never is with an Ariane 5. It's a, it's a highly reliable vehicle. It certainly but is. It, it's, the, it's still a rocket, and it's one of the most reliable reliable ones worldwide. Mm-hmm. But again, we're talking rockets here, okay? Let's always keep that in mind that we're talking rockets. It's like a building with an explosion underneath it. Uh, that's, that's a way to put it. Mm-hmm. A round building with lots of propellant inside. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, when, when you stand next to one, I mean, those 60-something meters, mm-hmm. really, when you have that perspective and you're standing under one of them, it's it really, it's mind-blowing. Well, well, thanks thanks to you, Julio. I have stood underneath an Ariane 5 in the building while it's being built, It's it's and it is absolutely epic. It's, it's humbling. It's incredible, and every time I get to go there and I see one and I'm in front of that, I'm very, very grateful of that opportunity. I know I'm quite privileged, and I wish everyone could could see it. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. quoting quoting uh, William Shatner, everyone should see this. Oh God, yeah. Ah, oh, I'm yeah. still so chuffed. I'm so chuffed that my favourite Canadian managed to get to space at ninety. He's the oldest person ever to go to space. That's going to take. Wait, wait, some... wait. Uh, so, so you're saying that Mike Myers went to space as well? <laughs> I do like Mike Myers. Still, Shatner's my favourite. Do you know what? I have been having a Austin Powers renaissance recently. I've been watching the films. Those are very good movies. I think in a way they are responsible for bringing back James Bond. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, let's... let's. Uh, I mean, I tell you a few a few, a few, few interesting bits about this, this flight, this uh, Ariane 5 launch. As you said, um, yes, as we approach the very critical launch that uh, the James Webb launch is and every launch on Ariane 5 are critical every launch has very important clients okay these are mm-hmm. very important payloads very important satellites that were launched but um yeah you before going with a payload such as James Webb you want to make sure that your previous couple of launches go without a hitch right and this is what we were really looking forward to 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 have the Flight 254 last July, and this one going, uh, yeah, launching nominally. And yes, we had that. The two payloads, uh, yeah, were deployed in the correct orbits. One of the payloads is a telecom satellite for SES, the telecommunications company. Their satellite is SES 17. Um, and then the other one. How, how, wait, wait, wait. How did they come up with that name? <laughs> Um, I I assume some heavy brainstorming sessions and finally a consultancy company adding to it, yes. Because it, wasn't it going to be called the SES A Prayer at one point? <laughs> and then they just decided to go it. with <laughs> Stop, Stop it with these jokes. It's, uh, I, I, I appreciate simplicity in naming. We, mm. Not everything needs to be called Leonardo da Vinci. Yeah, but, but it is, it, presumably this thing did cost many hundreds of millions of dollars, right? So yes. it, doesn't it deserve a name better than 17? First of all, I don't know if, I, if it has been christened with any other name internally, but when you're a successful telecommunications company like SES and you have a fleet of satellites flying around, 
I think it's good to have a standard naming structure for it. <laughs> so you know exactly which one you're referring to and you don't uh, have yes, to have a, a table like, oh, this is the... The Apriah. It's number 17. Well, it's number 17. No, you want yeah, to know. Yeah, it's yeah. 17. That's important information, right? Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Anyway, um, the other one, the satellite is called Syracuse 4A. So as you can imagine, there are other Syracuse's satellites mm. previous uh, to that. Is, isn't this a military one? This is a military one for the French um, direc Direction Générale de l'Armement. Nice. Which is, uh, yeah, I'm not very familiar with the, the the French governmental structure, but this would be army general direction, but I really don't... Uh, uh, it, it, being English, it's taking every ounce of energy not to make a French military joke. Anyway, the, the Saturday itself, it's uh, for providing secure communications mm -hmm. uh, between the armed forces... And also with, for instance, with operations with NATO and such. These are the, the type of satellites that, uh, yeah, they they have very increased security to make sure that those communications remain secret, hmm. not that they can only be accessed by who needs to access it. And they and they and they are resilient to not being interfered. Uh, here's a question for you, Julio. You may or may not. I'm putting you on the spot here. But if you had a very early version of the Ariane 5, would it have been powerful enough to lift these two satellites into where they had to go? Or, or, or the kind of slow upgrades over the time that Ariane 5's been in service? Has that been capable of making it more capable? Because am I right in saying this is one of the heaviest payloads ever to geostationary orbit? Yeah, yeah, you, you make a good point. Yes, indeed, indeed. The two payloads combined with the payload adapter and everything uh, was the heaviest that an Ariane 5 carried to the geosynchronous transfer orbit. Obviously, mm. Ariane 5 has launched heavier payloads than that, just the ATV going to LEO to low Earth orbit was about 20 tons. Um, so it's not the heaviest payload, but it was the, he the, the heaviest to geosynchronous transfer orbit, which mm. is an orbit that requires a lot more energy than to, to reach than LEO. The, I mean, the higher you go in, in, into, the, into the orbits, uh, the more energy you need, and that does the less payload, the less performance you get, right? Mm -hmm. And yes, uh, Ariane 5 is not... The, the, the first Ariane 5 is not the same as this last Ariane 5. Over the years... Many improvements have been made to the to the rocket, inclu including sometimes changes, complete changes in the upper stage. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was a new upper stage with um, the the one we're using now with cryogenic uh, fuel. Uh, but also, there have been small incremental increase in performance. For instance, this particular launch, the VA two hundred and fifty five, sometimes you increase the performance not only with the mass that you launch, but also with the amount of volume that you can allow for the payloads. Mm -hmm. In this one, the volume of the fairing of the Ariane 5 was increased uh, by attaching a, a 1.5 meters racing cylinder. So it could, so the fairing could accommodate these two satellites that were very, very large. Oh, wow. One. Yeah. Uh, but yes, uh, this is one of the reasons as well that Ariane 5 launches a James Webb back in the day when it was selected. And I think even today it remains that Ariane 5 has one of the 
biggest volumes under the fairing. Mm. One of the, of course, there are other launchers now in development that will have bigger fairings, bigger diameters, but currently in the market, this is it. Anyway, uh, yeah, fun fact, because we increased this, uh, we, we inserted this cylinder to, to increase the volume of the fairing, uh, I hear from colleagues that this was the tallest uh, Ariane 5 ever. Mm-hmm. And I say I, I hear from colleagues because, you know, I'm always very, uh, unless I can go and measure it myself. When, when you make a rocket like longer like that, presumably you have to do some kind of computer modeling and stuff like that to make sure that it's that there's not going to be some weird... Oh, for sure. This, this, this modification is not something that you just added the cylinder and you go. You, you do system checks and simulations, etc. Yes, this, yeah, yeah. this is the whole package. I mean, you just see that it's 1.5 <laughs> meters taller and there is an increased volume, but uh, there is a full qualification of that, right? It's not something that you just add the piece of hardware mm. and you go. Yeah, yeah. Even yeah. even things like the, 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 the onboard cameras that we installed for the next flight for James Webb, they also have to go through a big review process. You know, it's not just like you slap a GoPro and, and you go. Yeah, because 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 you could just get like a hundred kilometer fairing, and then the then the satellite's already in space. <laughs> yeah, now you're now you're just being silly, and and, and and here I was thinking we were having this nice serious no, conversation. No, no, <laughs> but I was thinking, you know, I was just taking it to an extreme. No, just, but okay, just... look, uh, we had the two last launches. It yeah. was they, they 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 were successful. Okay, there was uh, there was the world was watching that this one would go well. Mm-hmm. I, I noticed during the night. Uh, this happened last weekend, by the way. We we, we have to stay up most of the <laughs> most of the night, and uh, yeah, I noticed there was a lot of a lot of attention online and and a lot of expectation expectations from a public that normally does not look towards. Kuru mm. or the European uh, spaceport, right? Mm. Lots of m- more, a lot more American, US attention for this launch than than the previously. Normal. Yeah, than normal. not surprisingly. Yeah. I mean, you know, the James Webb Telescope when it flies will be one of the greatest achievements of mankind, right? There's been that brilliant video, isn't there, of of it unpacking and all the different things that it has to do to get out to its Lagrange point. Did you like those yes. videos? Yes. Which one was your you favorite, know, the ESA or the NASA one? Well, you, you no favorites. <laughs> you know that I told you that we watched the I watched the ESA one, mm-hmm. the one that shows the launch of the Widarian Five and the full deployment, right? Mm. And when I saw the way that the the sun shield is deploying, it just gives me as an engineer, it gives me nightmares. And then. Uh, then when I was already having nightmares, I watched the video from NASA of the 20 day, 29 days on the edge in which they explained that there are 100 and I don't remember now how many mechanisms that have to have to um, work correctly and on cue for that sun shield to deploy correctly. But at the same time, I love this. I love how good nasa how transparent they are on the difficulties you know mm. they don't tell you yeah this is going to work they tell you this is difficult and they make it clear to you before the launch this is difficult i remember do you remember the seven minutes of terror mm-hmm. to, to land on mars well twice the twice it's happened 
Yeah, but they, well, at least for the first time, they build such an expectation that this the sky crane was so crazy a concept and so difficult that you were just expecting for it to fail. And then you start treating it as the moment it was successful, it's like you just won the World Cup or something. Mm. Well, because like, you yeah. had all this expectation building behind. Well, Falcon and Heavy was I, the same, I wasn't it? I see how they did it in this, this video. I mean, any, everyone must watch this video, the NASA video of the 29 Days on the Edge. It's brilliant. Yeah. It's brilliant. Anyway, um, yeah. Well, maybe we should talk about James Webb a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only thing we have been talking about so far. Um, but yeah, news on the on the launch side of James Webb. We well, uh, when was it? A few more than a week ago, I think it was almost ten days ago. The James Webb arrived to to Europe spaceport in French Guiana. Mm-hmm. After um, yeah, uh, it traveled from California. It went through the Panama Canal. Mm. It was keeping its. Um, I mean. <laughs> The James Webb did not navigate the waters. It was being transported in a boat. And the boat had its... Um, I understand that they, they kept the transponders off during most of the trip to avoid pirates. Oof. That led to, a, to lots of online jokes about James Webb arriving and then you open the container and you find... Uh, oh my God, Jack Sparrow. Jack, that you find Jack Sparrow inside instead <laughs> of the James Webb and... There were many many jokes about the astron- uh, about the the pirates. Um, no, but that was fun. And now, uh, yeah, now it's sitting there in the in the clean room. Yeah, now it's being checked. Um, there are running tests to make sure everything is in top shape for the, later the integration into the Ariane Five and yeah, launching it into space. Well, you, this you, you December. know, you laugh about the pirates thing, but you know the reason why America doesn't have the metric system is because. When the kilogram and the meter and all that was being sent to them by boat, it was intercepted by pirates and they never received it. And and so they kept the old imperial system. A, you must uh, be joking. I, I'm not joking. I'm actually not joking. There is some truth to that story. And they didn't bother to send another one. Well, well, well it's really expensive. You know, those like it, the the the, kilo, the kilogram was like a ball of platinum. It's like it's not cheap. Was it was it almost like launching James Webb? Yeah, it's, I guess it's the scientific equivalent. Yeah, of of like having your back in that day, back yeah. in the day. Yeah, and they were nicked by pirates, and and that was it. Wow, interesting. Mm-hmm. Here, so yeah, I learned something new today. Yeah, I mean, it probably requires a bit of fact checking, but there, I, I think there's a there's eighty percent truth to it. <laughs> I like. Bit like you, unless I unless I really see the actual story. I, the, but that, I, I, yes, that's the story I've heard anyway. Julio, I haven't got time to check it, with, but the listeners yeah. can check it with caveats. Yes, with if, caveats. If, if Matt with caveats. got it wrong, we we would yeah, love d- to d- hear it. Yeah, and you know that's part of that's how how this works. Same if but, I got something wrong, please tell me. So Julio, who 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 are our who are our guests? Because because they're much more knowledgeable about both these things than than we are. Oh yes, indeed. Uh, regarding the well, we we did this interview, uh, mm-hmm. two interviews back to back. The first one with Kate Underhill, uh, who is a space propulsion engineer at at ESA, and yeah, she's a veteran of the podcast. You have indeed, already interviewed indeed, her. Indeed, indeed. She joined us to 
describe in a way how the launch campaign for James Webb um, goes and how it launches into space and the different steps and the environment the the telescope goes through as it goes into space. Then um, when Kate, let's say, takes us to space, uh, mm-hmm. Then we are joined by Sarah Kendrew, who is an instrument scientist for James Webb, the James Webb Space Telescope as well, um, where we talk more on the science side and the engineering of the space telescope itself, of the web itself. Mm. During this whole interview, we're also joined by Kai Novsk. And I. this is the first time I have to pronounce his last name, so I don't know if I'm doing it right. <laughs> Kai Novsk. He will kill me if I get it wrong. Uh, he's the ESA science communications officer. So when it comes, when you see news uh, about and related to the scientific missions of ESA and yeah, communication activities on the matter, he's he's the reference point for for this. Um, when you want to talk about not only space telescopes but also probes, the missions to Venus and, and mm. such, it's it's a it's a good it's a good one to ask. I tell you what, I, I want all three back on the podcast again because they're all brilliant guests, aren't they? And one by one. Yeah, and one by one, a bit more time because this a was a, yeah. a bit more time for each. It was a sprint. Yeah. It was a sprint because we had about 20 minutes per per guest. And <laughs> normally <laughs> you used to, used to like an hour and a half per guest. Yeah. So yeah, it was definitely shorter than usual. Yeah, it was a, it was a brutal it was brutal it was brutal uh, podcasting podcasting at its best. Shall we? Shall we? It shall was we almost just... live radio because we had an audience. Yeah, we, we did had have an audience. audience. We yeah, had a yeah. chat room. Uh, we had people asking questions, and I have to say it was uh, stressful in some ways, but mm. exciting. I thought you were very I like good. This, Julio. this format of the live shows. Julio, shall we? Shall we stop rabbiting on and go straight to the interview? Ecoute. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. <laughs> Kate, I'm there here. Hi, hi, Julio. Hi, Matthew. Hello. Hi. Another, Welcome back. Another veteran of the show. Yep. Uh, yeah, Podcast 196, I believe. Wow, you have wow. a good memory, you know, you know them by heart. Wow. <laughs> I actually, I, I, I must admit, I put it into Google. So, Kate, um, Kate joined us um, in the past, she's a propulsion engineer working at the ESA uh, Space Transportation Directorate. Rocket scientist. Rocket scientist working on, on testing and breaking stuff. It's, that's or how you learn. Trying to break stuff, right? <laughs> trying uh, not to break stuff too much, a little bit. but A little bit, but to learn from it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, before we start, have you ever have you ever done that thing at a at a at a party or something where you ask someone their job and then you joke about it's not rocket science though, is it? And then tell them what you do. <laughs> uh, no, I have that problem quite often at a hairdresser, and they're like, "Oh, you know, what do you do?" And you're like, um, "I'm a rocket scientist." <laughs> it's not a joke; it's actually true. Uh, and generally, they're not quite sure what to say after that. Why did we end up saying rocket scientist instead of rocket engineer? Yeah, that is true. Actually, yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's engineering. It's not what I do is engineering, not science. But uh, nothing wrong with being I, an engineer, right? No, it's it's applied science. So, Kate, um, you are still you're still working in the future launchers preparation program at ESA, I presume. Yes. Actually, I know, but <laughs> yeah, I haven't changed since Friday now. You want to tell us a little bit uh, a little bit of what you guys do there? 
Yes, uh, we prepare future launches. Sorry, that's, hence the name. So you are, <laughs> in a way, inventing the future. Yes, which is... I keep telling people it's really interesting. Like engineering is actually, and science is actually really creative. And this is where we can be creative because the future doesn't exist yet. So we have launches that work really well today that are getting things into space. Ariane 5, we're building Ariane 6. We have Vega um, and Vega C coming along, all launching from our, our launch base. Uh, but we can always do better. And I think it's also linking to what uh, Franco Ongaro was saying earlier, doing things better, cheaper, quicker. And this is where uh, the Future Launch Preparatory Program comes in, is where we try and spin in technologies that we see from uh, other industries, from the automotive or from the aeronautical industry, and seeing if that can work for us. And then also really developing specific new engines, new materials for launches that can make our launches even better, have even better mission performance, even better versatility, and even cheaper. But Kate, we, we, have, um, we have rocket engines that are yeah. working perfectly fine but you're working on new rocket engines. What, are, what, do they, what do these bring to the table? You can always do better. So you're completely right. The, the basic idea of how we get into space and the basic idea behind a rocket engine hasn't changed since, since the Russians first, first launched 60 years ago. And it's, it's containing a large amount of, of a propulsion of a big flame, a big fire, and, and shooting out the right end of a nozzle. Uh, but what we can always do better is have a more efficient engine so we can have engine designs where we really try and use up all the propellant in pushing the, the rocket forwards and not losing some in, in cooling or things like this and also having more efficient materials what is really coming in now again it's not the engine design but it's new metals specific metals alloys they're going to be going to be lighter uh, 3d printing which means that we can print parts one example i always give is an injector head for an engine the traditional part has about 200 different pieces in one of my projects, we printed an injector head in one piece. So if you can imagine the kind of the the, the speed that we could do that, the ease and the, the cost reduction, going from 200 individual pieces to one piece means that we can have cheaper engines, cheaper launches. And then the idea is and getting into space is becoming is cheaper for everybody. We get a more of a kind of a, open up the space economy to everybody. In, in many ways, in many ways, as Franco said, the most difficult part is to put things in space. Yeah. And then, it's not easy. Then it, it is really rocket science up, getting right? up into orbit. You mentioned three aspects. The first one, when you mentioned the 3D printing and, and uh, manufacturing parts with uh, manufacturing parts with less items in a way and making it cheaper, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then uh, you mentioned making them lighter. I guess we make them lighter because we want our rocket to be lighter. We want less mass. Right. Yes, it's it, it's um, there's a a variety of impacts, but very clearly, the easiest one to say is on the upper stage. So RN5, I'll take the example. We have two solid boosters. We have a first stage of hydrogen, oxygen, liquid propulsion, and an upper stage of hydrogen, oxygen, liquid propulsion. Every kilo that the upper stage is lighter is an extra kilo of satellite we can spend we can put into orbit. So the lighter our upper stage is, the bigger, the heavier the payloads we can put into orbit. Right. So we want to make it lighter, we want to make it cheaper, and you mentioned as well to make it more efficient. That if, yeah. if I'm trying to get my head around it, and I always have a hard time with this, is basically we want to increase the mileage, right? To get more... Yeah, to get go more further with the propellant. Per, yeah. per liter of, of prope uh, propellant, correct? Yeah, and again, it's the idea of being able to send up a bigger satellite with the same amount of fuel because we completely use that fuel for the mission and not... Uh, not wasting it, not using on on um, on cooling or other elements of the rocket. 
Okay. Is, is that is that a frustration with with rocket engineering? Because I I, I I get frustrated by it. So I don't know whether someone actually in the profession does. Where a lot of technology, like say you know computer chips and solar panels and everything else like that, is on is on a kind of Moore's law of it getting exponentially better all the time. Whereas rocket engineering seems to be this kind of slow incremental crawl. Is that frustrating? <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, no, I don't find it frustrating, but it's true. As again, the basics physics haven't changed at all, and even we talk about you know SpaceX is very well known. They're still using the same ideas as we're using. The engines are very similar, but they're just doing really intelligent things in terms of efficient production processes and efficient choices of of engine design. Um, it's not frustrating because there's always something we can do to to make it better, and because we're really at the kind of the fourth. What is really interesting is being at the forefront of kind of knowledge, materials knowledge, production knowledge. We're really pushing elements. I talk about the metals, uh, the turbo hydrogen turbo pump. I think of the first stage engine of Ariane 5 is going at 70,000 rotations per minute at 20 Kelvin, so minus 270 degrees Celsius. Getting metals that can survive that environment, and they're 20 centimeters away from the combustion, which is at 200 degrees Celsius. Finding a metal that can survive that environment is not easy. And we're really pushing the boundaries of human knowledge. And once we kind of get that, it's really, there's a really satisfying idea of we've pushed back, we've learned something, we've built something that didn't exist before. So, and then in the ideal world, then we can downflow that to, to more terrestrial applications but i see your i see your point matt because when you look at science fiction many times the one thing they make magic of is the rocket engine and make it infinitely mm. efficient because well, it seems yeah. to be always the, the the point there that to to uh yeah to open the story for the rest of the book right like the expanse for instance I always but you think can of the but you can understand it can't you because you went from you know the wright brothers to apollo in the same you know, year distances it took from us from Apollo to now, and it's like we we can't actually get to the moon right now. <laughs> so you feel as though that that you can see why the like the public. You know, I get this question a lot from you know friends and just general public is, you know, what's what's so hard about getting to the moon? We did it fifty years ago, and and it it sort of plays into that. It's it's just really difficult, isn't it? It is really difficult. And again, it's uh, we got to the moon through a huge amount of political will and a huge amount of money. And uh, it's the money they spent on Apollo was amazing. There's data they got. They, they explored everything. They got really, really basic material, chemical data that we still use today because they spent so much money doing these basic research programs that today we don't have the same kind of funding. We use this, this this really basic data still to build up our projects. And Apollo, you can really through that I really understand kind of how much money they put onto this program. That's not the kind of money and political will we have now. So we we're we're doing a lot, a huge amount with the budgets we have. But it is, I really do think we're coming into a kind of a new phase now with uh income as commercial space transportation from the US, but also lots of startups in the UK. Space is becoming really part of the economy people are realizing how useful it is how necessary it is for everyday life franco was talking about all the uh, all the um, climate data we're getting from space all this kind of earth observation data is becoming part of everyday life and uh, for the moment the only way we can get into space is through rockets and so it's really becoming an important part of uh, of of kind of the terrestrial economy there's there's a really interesting question that's just come in on the on the chat, and that's you, you were talking about like improvements on on liquid rocket propulsion. But is uh, is is that simultaneous with with work on solids as well? 
Um, so I'll actually go back to the question about uh, kind of our ecological impact. So kind of liquid propulsion, especially we talk about hydrogen, oxygen, the the exhaust that comes out is water. So our, our ecological impact is pretty minimal. Solid propulsion, it's not quite so clean. There's, there's chemicals, there's aluminium, there's plastic in there. So we... Solid propulsion is used for Ariane 5 boosters, it's used for Vega, it's used for the next, next, you know, whenever, while we're using Ariane 5, Ariane 6 and Vega. But in a long-term vision, it's not something in terms of being green, being in the ecological, we see a, a future in in 15, 20 years. So it's not something that we are developing more, we're looking into trying to make liquid propulsion as green, as efficient as possible, and then seeing if there is some kind of step change. In the future, if there is a you know a paradigm shift, if you can get air breathing propulsion working. Now I, I have to stop you guys. I, I, it, it, every time we get Kate, we end up going into a, in, into a into a rabbit hole of of propulsion geekiness, <laughs> goodness, <laughs> which I love. What, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? Actually, no, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely wrong with that. Uh, absolutely nothing wrong with, <laughs> with that. Um, actually, Kate, you 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 were working up to not long ago in a in a rocket engine called Etid, right? Yeah. And what what was that one bringing into the picture? You you mentioned 3D printing. There was yeah. also methane in that one testing. Uh, we didn't do the methane testing, but we checked that we could use both hydrogen and methane as as the fuel on that. So trying to see if we can get again one engine design that could work in two different fuels. Right. Again, having something really efficient. So we had the 3D printed injector head. We've also now continuing Etid working on 3D printed combustion chamber. So again, taking an engine that had 400 parts and taking it down to four or five. We also had things, you know, James Bond like laser igniters, having a really small laser ignition system, making something a lot smaller, a lot more efficient, and being making it reignitable. A laser we can fire a number of times, so we can have this engine igniting hundreds of times in space if we want. You know, um, <laughs> we're now going into the rabbit hole, but I have beef. we invited you here today because you have a. a a not a not so secret secret past in which you used to work <laughs> you used to work um at Europe's spaceport back uh, down in French Guyana in yeah. South America right you spent exactly. a few years there and yeah. you were working on different launch campaigns if i remember correctly maybe you can tell us a little bit about it because today we want to quiz you about the the upcoming launch of the James Webb as well yeah, that's going to be an uh, amazing launch campaign, uh, kind of in good and bad way. That's a, it's going to be an interesting one. I exactly. I worked for the French company Ariane Espace, who commercializes the European launches. So they have Ariane Five, they have Vega, and they also have the Soyuz, the Russian Soyuz that launches from French Guiana. Uh, and I was living in French Guiana, working on launch operations. So it's 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 literally building the rocket, kind of assembling nuts and bolts of the rocket, putting the satellites on top. And doing the final countdown, making sure everything's ready, and then and launching it, getting up into space. So now we have the. Um, actually, I see that there are many questions coming on the chat. I'm loving them, and and we'll try to fit as many as we can in the time that we we have allocated for each guests. Um, but we know right now we have the James Webb is is on a boat somewhere yep. between California <laughs> and French Guiana. We yeah. are not. We don't know exactly. No details where. given. I mean, exactly. We do know. We're just not telling, right? Um, so, the, I'm finding that stressful. I'm finding that <laughs> stressful that it's on a boat, let alone a rocket. It's on a boat. <laughs> oh. um, so, once it arrives to the spaceport, 
right? Yes. And on the one side, we have the James Webb arriving in its, in its container and all the ground support equipment, which part of it, I assume, already arrived and mm-hmm. all the yeah. people that will work on this launch campaign. And as you said before, on the other side, you have the team preparing the rocket that will launch it. How do those things and do those things work in parallel? What what goes on there? How it works is a lot of planning and a lot of experience uh, and a lot of preparation. I was working in the French in the launch base ten years ago, and we were already discussing uh, some of the operations because James Webb is is such a specific satellite. We were already identifying the access we needed in terms of the of the building heights. The Ariane 5 assembly building has actually movable platforms at the top to be able to access specific points on each satellite. And then we were looking really into James Webb because it's completely different from what we've done before, making sure we could get the right access to the right parts of the satellite once we've done the integration. Uh, what I really love about launch campaigns is this huge mix. It's such we have this high-tech, you know, $9 billion satellite arriving. It's arriving on a boat it's going to go up the Karoo River that has been specially dredged so that the boat can actually fit up the Karoo River. It's going to have to be careful of the tides. You have to go at the right high tide, otherwise you're going to, your boat's going to get stuck in the river. It's this just a mix of, of high-tech and, and pure practicality that get everything working. I can see Matt pulling his hair. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and there, are, you know, there are people, there are tide tables that they've calculated to make sure, and that has to wait at the Ile de Salou, which are the islands, the, the old... Um, JL Islands just outside of crew. It has the boat has to wait there for the high tide to be able to come up the river. We have, you know, tide tables to make sure it's coming in at the right time. Then pick it up, drive it extremely slowly to the launch base where we have prepared all the satellite preparation facilities. And again, this has been years in, in the planning. We have Ariane 5 launch campaign for the launcher itself is 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 standard. How you build the launcher up is relatively standard, although there are specificities as specific elements for each launch campaign, especially especially for web, we've had to modify the rocket slightly. On one side, you have the rocket being assembled by the launch teams, and then the other side, you have the satellite preparation. Once it's arrived in French Guiana, they have to do a lot of, it's not in bits, but it's not finally assembled. They have to assemble it. We have to do checkouts. You have to make sure that it's arrived. It's in good health. It's going to work. And then we have something called the, the POC, the Plan des Operations Combinées, so combined operations. And there's the day that the satellite gets attached to what we call is a satellite adapter, which is the, the part, a part of a launcher. When the satellite meets the first part of the launcher, that then we're in this combined operations. And it's when we start working on the satellite and the launcher together, we start putting the satellite on its adapter, then we bring the satellite up to the assembly building. And we put the satellite on the launcher, we put the fairing on top, we do all the checkouts, making sure they're talking to each other properly, making sure the launch is okay, making sure the satellite's okay. Then we make sure everything's fine and we roll it out and launch. I am trying yeah. to show how snug yes. it fits inside it's, that fairing. It's, it's a very snug fit. So as I think Franco was saying that the, you know this is a huge mirror that's going into space, it's had to be folded up. I mean, Ariane 5 has one of the big biggest available volumes for satellites is 5.4 diameter diameter fairing. It's a big space, but we still got to fold up James Webb. So James Webb has to be folded up origami style to fit in correctly. We've had to make modifications in the fairing. James Webb is very sensitive about depressurization. So obviously we start at ground level. We've got one bar of pressure very quickly. We're up in space with zero bar of pressure. We've added extra venting holes in the uh, in the fairing to make sure that the, the, the pressurization is very smooth. So James Webb survives, is happy with that. We've got extra batteries on the upper stage to make sure that the maneuvers of the upper stage once it's separated are not going to interfere with James Webb. Uh, and we've got special maneuvers once we're up in space 
It's one of my favorite times as well. We've got barbecue maneuver. We're rolling the rocket in a way that the satellite is kind of heated equally all over, and there's not one side that gets more sun than the other. Oh, surely that's the rotisserie maneuver. <laughs> if you're French, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm just trying to picture. We have the we have the Ariane five here, right? Um, okay, I, I want Kate if you can describe step by step how a rocket launch happens. In particular, this one. If you can, you already mentioned the the barbecue maneuver at the end. Yeah, where do I start? Okay, let's say we've make us, assembled. Make us live the... through it before it happens. Matt, we've by the way, set. before you join us, Matt already did the countdown in French. He did it perfectly yeah. with the top and <laughs> Alumage <laughs> Vulcan and everything. I forgot that bit. You did that bit for me. For me. Uh, well, yeah. It's, uh, it's specific for, for an 5 So we've got the satellite on the launcher. We've put the fairing on top. We've checked it out. Like I say, everything has um, is talking to each other properly. Everything is connected in. The satellite is connected into the, the electricity supply of the launcher to make sure that it's, it's kind of to make sure they're talking or make sure that we can communicate with both the satellite and the launcher. One of the last things we do on the launcher, in fact, is um, is arm it. We have pyrotechnical devices for all the separations when we separate the boosters, when we separate the, the stages. We obviously put them in last. So we finish all our operations. We send in the team doing the pyrotechnical devices. They're put in the launcher. And then we confirm, we have a review to confirm that the launcher is ready. And then we uh, take the launcher out to the launch pad. So it's in an assembly building, that what we call the BAF. And then it is rolled out onto the launch pad. The launcher is on in what we call a launch table, which is on, on wheels. And we have a rail track. Uh, it's actually pulled out by a truck. It's hard to believe, but there is actually a truck. The truck pulls has this. like 16 gears or something. 40 like, gears. Yeah. 40, 40, wow. And there is like, yeah, there's three people that in the world that can drive it. It's very, very specific <laughs> truck. It's not any truck. But it is a truck, just an, a truck-sized truck that pulls out the launcher plus the launch table, plus all, there's a little train behind it that's got all the electricity and the air and the dry air we need during the transit from one building to the launch pad. So we take it out. This takes a whole day. Obviously, we're going very slowly. Ariane 5 is not attached. It just sits on its launch table by the boosters, by its solid boosters are sitting down. There's no attachment in any way. So we are going very slowly. It's very flat. What happens if it's a strong wind? We can't go out if it's strong winds. Okay. We can't go out if there is lightning risk and we can't go out if there's strong winds. And it's a bit like a launch. We have very strict criteria for when for when the launcher is outside of a building, in fact. Uh, and we also have um, the Foreign Legion, French Foreign Legion, are on the launch base. As soon as the launcher is visible, so as soon as the doors of the building are open, then we have the French Foreign Legion protecting the launch base because obviously security is a big and important issue and even more so for James Webb. Uh, it's very controlled who has access to the launcher and who has visibility on the launcher. So we take it out onto the launch pad. We do all the connections. Again, all this fuel connections, all the air connections. We are constantly, the satellite is constantly having dry, cold air within the fairing because electronics don't like the 100% humidity atmosphere of French Guiana. So we keep the satellites and the launcher itself nice and clean and dry. We connect everything up and then we start what we call the final countdown. And these are the final um, operations that we do um, at a distance. We're in now. We're in the control room, a couple of kilometers away from the launch pad, and we are at our computers making the making the orders for the final uh, operations. And this is pressurizing the tanks, filling the tanks of fuel because the all those solid boosters are already fuel filled with their fuel. The liquid main stage and the upper stage are not full of fuel. 
filling them, pressurizing them, switching all the electronics on, making sure the electronics are happy. Uh, and then we do that. That takes generally about 12 hours for the final countdown. Uh, we time it so that we have a half an hour that we are completely ready at least half an hour before launch. That is to say, we make sure that every single system is ready at least half an hour before launch so that we have a little bit of margin. Um, a lot of launches, we have launch window. We can actually have an hour, hour and a half to launch, and we can launch any time within those that specific hour and a half. For launches like James Webb, it's you have to launch you know, precisely certain launches you have to launch at the second, on the right second. Otherwise, we have to wait for another day. So we get everything ready at least half an hour beforehand. We make sure we're ready. And then uh, we wait. We make sure everything's green. Again, that the weather is okay, that the satellite is okay, that the launch is okay, that the tracking stations are okay. I've had that problem before. Everything was all right, but one of the tracking stations in Africa went offline. And we can't launch without the tracking stations, making sure that we've got the full visibility of the launcher throughout the whole trajectory. Everything across the world has to be ready, has to be connected. And then when the time comes, it's at seven, seven minutes before liftoff is when the automated sequence starts. And in fact, and, we don't and do anything anymore. We just make sure the launcher counts itself down and gets itself ready for liftoff. And while this uh, aut automatic countdown starts, uh, let me... Uh, mentioned that we have a surprise guest, Kai Nosk. He's the communications officer for the science directorate here, who Hi, is Kai. also working on, on the web. You just missed the, the launch campaign of the James Webb. Oh, yeah, Sorry. but you can join us. You are exactly about to launch it. Exactly about, about to launch. launch. And I see that Sarah, our next, uh, next guest, is also already joined. So, Sarah, if you want to uh, turn on your camera and join us at any moment, feel free to do so. And now I guess we go to this final countdown, Kate. Yes, 10. So <laughs> you have, uh, we're watching very carefully the, the final countdown from seven minutes. It's automatic, but we have all the information on our screens. We're making sure that things are happening properly. The automatic countdown is, is programmed. There are very specific criteria. Again, it's final pressurization, final filling, switching batteries on. If anything is not correct, then the launch will stop and put itself back in a safe mode. So we are always making sure the data coming through is correct. We hope everything is right. Then we get to the last minute, then we get to the last 10 seconds, we do the French countdown, 10, 10, 9, down to zero. And RN5 is, is a little bit special on this, is at zero is when the Vulcan engine ignites, but the launcher doesn't lift off. The Vulcan engine by itself is not enough to launch the, the rocket. We have the Vulcan engine, we ignite it, and we make sure it's working properly. So again, we check the parameters of the engine. Yeah, it's looking good. And then seven seconds later, if it's looking good, then we ignite the solid boosters, and that's when the launch takes off. And by this point, everything is automatic, as you said. If these seven yeah. seconds, there is some anomaly with the engine and it shuts down, it's all automatic. There is not one yeah. person there with the button, let's say. Okay. Exactly. It's all automatic. We've had the case before. We've ignited Vulcan. There's something that we weren't happy with. The, the, the program wasn't happy with. It... it it, it switched the it switched volcano off and uh, the launch countdown was stopped and automatically it puts itself back into a safe mode, waiting for us to check what happened and see what the next steps would be. Exactly. In the meantime, uh, just as we are about to hand over from the launcher we, uh, to to the mission itself to the James Webb, we we are joined here by our colleagues from science, Kate. As you. Uh, Maybe after, now there is this ignition of the solid boosters yep. and lift off. Lift off. What yes. happens then? So it uh, makes a lot of noise and a lot of light. This is my favorite discussion with anybody who watches a launch 
uh, actual launches, is it is it the light that's more impressive or the sound that's more impressive? And there's no right answer. It's just it's just incredible. Especially Iron Five, it goes up really fast, goes up straight to go up over. We have launch towers, we have a lightning rods to make sure it doesn't get hit, so it's got up straight. Then it rolls over. It's what we call a gravity turn. There's a specific reason we don't want to have lose energy because of gravity, and it flies up following its trajectory. After two minutes, um, so the boosters over have 200, over 240 tons of solid propellant in them. After two minutes, we've burnt all of it. It's all gone. We drop the boosters. We don't need them anymore. After three minutes, we're already high enough that we don't need the fairing anymore because there's not enough atmosphere. So as you understand with the rockets, as soon as we don't need a mass, we drop it. After three minutes, we've dropped the fairing. The satellite is out in the open. After nine minutes, we've burnt all the propellant in the main stage, so the volcano will stop and we separate the main stage from the upper stage. Then we have ignition of the upper stage that will do the line, kind of really get the precision insertion, what we call orbital injection insertion for the payload. So that goes up until 27 minutes. And then we have separation from of the satellite. We set the satellite off. So for James Webb, it's going to go into an L2 transit transfer orbit. So what the launcher L2 doesn't take... For? L2 is a Lagrange position which has a very specific kind of gravity s- position between the Earth and the Sun's gravitational uh, connections that are, it's a relatively stable orbit behind the Earth. So it's easier for the satellite to stay in that place. And we are away from the Earth kind of interference of the atmosphere and the and noise coming and the, and the heat coming from Earth. So thank you, Kate. And um, so now we are in this place. Uh, you mentioned already the, the payload separation, right? Yeah. Okay. Payload separation. We send the payload on its way, and then the upper stage it puts itself, does it a few maneuvers to get itself out of the way and make sure that we are we're not going to interfere the upper stage, and also make sure that we put ourselves in what we call a safe orbit that we're not going to interfere with any other. And the payload satellites. is and it's quite the payload this time. It's quite payload the payload. Is, we have it here on the desk. Yeah, it's it's on its own, and that's when um, that's when it will start being able to deploy. The mirror deploy, uh, what's very important is also the kind of the panels, solar panels getting the energy. And that's where we'll start, you know, sending signals back saying, yeah, I'm okay. I've survived the launch. I started my deployment sequence and I'm on my way to my final orbit. And here, here is where we have to introduce our colleagues uh, from the science directorate because they are the ones in charge of this baby, right? So far we have been shaking the baby shooting it into space <laughs> hoping yeah. it doesn't we get hit it. by lightning we've delivered it it's on its way now it's on its own now it's your <laughs> now it's their business now it's yours yeah. um, so we have here um, Kai and, and Sarah Kai has been uh, you were just around here and, 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 and it was very nice of you to, to, to come and join us I asked him especially to come and join me here today um, I, I, I prefer to have someone sitting next to me and be able to bounce with and, and talk to so thank you Kai for your availability on a Sunday on a Sunday can you believe that it's, welcome it's, uh, And we have uh, Sarah Kendrew joining us from the uh, Space Telescope Institute in Baltimore. My my cheat sheet is gone, so I'm trying to do things by memory. You're an astronomer, right? Uh, yeah, astronomy and instrument builder. Yep. Welcome. And if I remember correctly, uh, you're working uh, specifically on the MIRI instrument, but you're also yeah, working that's on the correct. you're also working on the on the mission uh, mission operations or. Yeah, specifically for science the science operations. instrument, so okay. almost entirely uh, on MIRI, yeah. So, um, 
I will ask you both now, we just got, you just were left in space by the Ariane 5. You're in your trajectory to your final destination. This is what you look like, except you're still in your egg in the ferry. And once you're out, you still look like that. And you have to become that. That, exactly. Or or what we can see in, uh, behind you, Sarah. I think you, you, you are in the... Uh, just like Kate is in the International Space Station, you're standing right in front of the James Webb. As it's on the boat, I assume. <laughs> on the boat <laughs> yeah, right that's now. correct. That's yes, a very good yes. internet just connection for a boat. Just hanging out in the clean room. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... And it's in this uh, folded configuration, right? And it's going to be slowly opening. Uh, I don't know who wants to... Maybe, Sarah, you can tell us first. I understand first you have the solar panels getting getting deployed. Is this correct? Uh, so it's um, we have a very fine timeline. Um, as Kate's already, just kind of following on from, from Kate's story, you know, it's a very kind of... Uh, a uh, tightly choreographed sequence of events and um and it, in reality for once you know once we're in space once the telescope is uh, traveling out to L2 and gets to its orbit that finely choreographed um uh, kind of dance takes uh, a long time so it's many months that we have a very you know, find timeline of all the events that take place before we are ready to do science. So yeah, the first, um, in that first period, uh, we have the whole deployment sequence. And I have to confess, I should have, uh, I need notes to keep, uh, to, to really know exactly what the um, sequence of events is. Uh, as, as an expert on the science instruments, uh, we mainly focus uh, in my job on the uh, on, on the actual activities with with the instruments, uh, which come quite a lot later because obviously we don't we don't um, start using the instruments until uh, the telescope is fully open and deployed. But there are numerous um, components that all have to be deployed. So we have, uh, as you said, we have kind of solar um, solar arrays, we have communications devices. Um, uh, and all these kinds of things that are tightly folded up in, in uh, together to fit into the Ariane 5. Um, the, the really the big items that have to unfold are uh, the sun shields. So in the in Kai's beautiful model there that you can see, it has this kind of shiny diamond shaped structure that sits underneath the telescope. So that is um, a large sun shield. So that is actually the size of a, of a tennis court. So that's an enormous structure. And it consists of, uh, I believe, five layers of extremely thin material um, that are kind of tightly rolled up together uh, during launch. And so that deployment sequence is this kind of very slow and controlled unrolling of the sun shields. And then they have to be, the layers have to be separated out and kind of tensioned in the correct way. Um, and so that that's going, that's a major part of the deployment. Uh, the other huge components are obviously the mirrors. Um, so the primary mirror has these kinds of wings folded in. Uh, so these have to be slowly and very carefully folded out uh, to form one nice continuous mirror. And then you also get the 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 structure that holds the secondary mirror. So you can see uh, in the model, you can see these uh, struts coming out from 
the primary mirror and they hold uh, another mirror that which is the secondary of the telescope in in the background behind me you can actually see this kind of folded up vertically that that kind of um strut structure um just kind of so uh, the, the light fold or, out. or the the signals would come into this primary mirror as you said and they would focus on the secondary one that extends in the front Correct, yes. And then from the secondary mirror, the light gets uh, sent into basically the instrument module, which is mounted on the back of the mirror. So this so here is the front of the mirror, you can see, and on the back of it is a kind of, um, is a module that all the science instruments are kind of mounted on. Um, so if I'm just leaned to the side, the light will go into this structure here. Uh, and right behind that, then it gets separated out to the different instruments and all the the, the other hardware that's needed to keep the telescope, you know, like pointed and 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 um, on target. So we we just went from from the fully, let's say, folded telescope to its its full deployment. All these all this time is is going along its way to its final destination in the L two point. Correct. Uh, yes. Correct. Uh, yeah. Okay. And um, all along this way, at the beginning, like with any satellite, you have a, a let's say a commissioning phase. Um, um, how do you call it? Um, for the commission commissioning phase. phase, to check that everything's healthy, as you mentioned, um, Sarah. Um, I understand that once you get to your point, you don't immediately start doing science, right? You first have to calibrate it. Uh, that's right. I mean, if I can. Uh you're actually arriving at the L2 point, at the Lagrange point 2, where it goes in a stable orbit, follow around Earth, roughly when it's fully deployed. And the deployment will take between three and four weeks. Um, they want to take their time. Everything is very well uh, orchestrated. Everything is planned. But uh, we, can, we are sure that it will definitely arrive after about 29 days at the L2 point. And this will roughly be the time that it takes to deploy the whole telescope. And then uh, the the actual commission, commissioning will begin. They will turn on the instruments. They will uh, have to align. I think if we can adjust this a bit, thank you. They have to align the mirror segments. Each of these 80 mirror segments has uh, actuators, so they need to put it in the exact right position angle uh, to make sure that you have a perfect mirror surface and uh, get everything else started up, get everything else uh, tested with engineering exposures where you first start taking images of relatively simple objects like stars that you understand very well to understand the performance of your instruments to get everything adjusted and to more to monitor really every single parameter of this really complex instrument every bit of temperature every bit of movement everything is being recorded and this is a very thorough process in almost all uh, spacecraft this takes a few months yes yeah, so all this process of calibration right and and then you said it's a few months and then is the the event happens. This is when we what you I keep seeing you you call you guys call it first light, right, Sarah? First light when when the first uh, first light is already when you're doing science, or is this already still in the in the calibration period? Um, so as um, as instruments become uh, kind of available for for science, so you know every instrument will go through its sequence of of checkouts and yeah. Uh, and calibration observations, like we will be doing some observation, we will be doing some observations along the way, but these will then also require time to get processed and everything. So it's not that, 
um, you know, we'll, we'll just sort of take a picture of something and put it on the internet. So there will always be like a bit of time uh, associated with that. Um, but I mean, yes, of, as, as part of our commissioning activities, we do look at, you know, at stars and things like that. So we will be getting um, a lot of kind of first look images. Um, ah, okay. So this yeah, first light is at the beginning of the calibration when you start turning on certain instruments. I was confused. I thought it was when you start the, the scientific, the science period, right? So um, you work specifically on one instrument, right? How many instruments does the, the, the web have? more or less the MIDI and what so, else? So there are four science instruments on board, which are all packaged into that module that I mentioned on the back of the mirror. Um, we have three science instruments in the near infrared. Um, that's NERCAM, which is um, a huge camera. It's a beast and it has some spectroscopy as well. Um, then um, we have an instrument called NERSPEC, which was actually uh, an ESA-led instrument. Uh, this is kind of really the spectroscopic workhorse instrument in the near infrared. It has a bunch of different types of spectroscopy that it can do, all like really quite advanced. Um, you know, a lot of things that we haven't really been able to do from space before. So incredibly powerful instrument. Uh, we have NIRIS, which is a Canadian-led uh, instrument. Uh, NIRIS uh Yeah, so NIRIS is kind of uh, has also has some imaging and spectroscopy on board and is going to be used a lot for exoplanet observations. And then once we get to the mid-infrared, uh, and by that we mean light that's kind of longer than five microns in wavelength, uh, we have the one instrument, MIRI. Um, it has lots and lots of different functionality on board. So we do have, we have a huge team of experts on all the different aspects of the instruments. Um, Miri has, uh, you know, a, a, an imager. It can do coronagraphic imaging. So this is where we block out the light of a star uh, to be able to really visualize what's around it, whether it's got, you know, disks or planets around it. Um, we have different types of spectroscopy and including um, a spectroscopic mode that is like really specialized for um, doing uh, time series uh, observations of, of exoplanets, for example. So that's going to be quite a big part of what we do. Uh, we, and we also have a very sophisticated um, spectrometer um, that uh, is also kind of quite a unique capability uh, that is uh, going to give us an incredibly rich amount of data about all different kinds of astrophysical objects. Is so it's a very varied suite of instruments that can do you know, really uh, can observe all kinds of different targets across the board in astrophysics. So that's from solar system objects and asteroids and um, to exoplanets around other stars in our galaxy to, you know, all the way to the kind of most distant galaxies in the universe. And that's really kind of its big power is that this huge versatility in the instruments. So to, to temper my um, expectations, how... Uh, it When do you expect to be able to take, you know, a measurement of an exoplanet's atmosphere and, and actually sort of definitively say, do you know what, this looks like it, it contains this chemical, this chemical or this chemical, and then, you know, maybe one day go, hang on a second, we've got a pretty convincing signature that there may be uh, organic life on that planet. How long do you think that that will take in James Webb's deployment? I mean, I mean, basically, we have we have an, quite a few observations of exoplanet atmospheres planned for very early in the in the 
first cycle of observation. So as soon as, you know, we are kind of what we call ready for science, we can do those observations. Of course, these, these transiting exoplanet observations where you really use spectroscopy to really be able to kind of probe into the chemistry of the atmospheres, these are incredibly challenging observations. Um, and I actually spent quite a lot of time on the kind of the technical and operational aspects of doing these uh, doing these ty types of observations. You're not just talking about um, trying to measure signals, at, you know, at a few percent. You're really talking about very small fractions of a percent that you are trying to um, that you're trying to measure. And as you say, if you want to measure them definitively, you know, you you need um, you need extremely good uh, sort of characterization of, of your signal and calibrations. So in terms of, um, but, you know, amongst the exoplanet kind of zoo that we have, there are, you know, there are some that are easier to, you know, easier to measure than others. Um, so I'm sure that we will have, you know, very early on in the first cycle. So after commissioning, we will have some, some, some measurements like that. Yes. Um, the, the types of exoplanets that people find the most exciting or that are the most like compelling for being Earth-like, uh, you know, they tend to be like the really small planets. Um, and so, uh, the, you know, they tend to also be like the most challenging uh, to, to get measurements of their atmospheres. Um, so, so it's really hard to say um, what, when, you know, when we're really going to get like, this is definitely a biosignature, this is definitely, um, you know, potentially life. There's a whole there's a whole other field of science behind that as well, and that's really kind of understanding what would what would a sign of life really be, and I think that's something that you know we we, we don't have a conclusive answer to either. So, like, what molecule exactly would you look for, and what type of pattern exactly would you need to see? Um, but we but Webb is going to deliver uh, a, a huge amount of really amazing data on that. I think. Um, for the, for, for the first time, spectroscopically at a, at a very large range of wavelengths, so really able to see uh, molecular species that you know we've we've not really been able to access before with um, with other telescopes or space missions. So I'm I'm absolutely confident that we are going to make huge advances in that in that area. Um, but that kind of uh, holy grail question <laughs> is is a very very challenging one, and I think that. Um, yeah, that's going to take uh, a lot of research still. Yeah, I mean, aside from that holy grail question, which, which of course, I guess, I guess is the thing that inflames the public imagination the most. As a scientist, is, is there sort of data that seems to be low-hanging fruit for the James Webb Telescope that you're pretty convinced you'll get back that, that is exciting in terms of the work of astronomers and, and astrobiologists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Is there some, is, is it, you know, it's such a groundbreaking telescope. There's nothing like it. Is there, is there like almost like an immediate return from putting it up? Um, yeah, so I mean, certainly in the field of exoplanets, like I said, um, Webb can cover kind of uh, wave has has wavelength coverage and instrument functionality on board that's really unique and that's like very new kind of uh, parameter space. And when you do that, and particularly in the mid infrared, in fact, for MIRI, um, with, you know, which I work on mid infrared is, is quite a, a challenging wavelength range. So it's almost impossible to do from the ground. Um, and the, for, uh, for MIRI, the real predecessor was the Spitzer space telescope, uh, rather than Hubble, which never even approached, uh, the kinds of wavelengths that, that Spitzer and MIRI, um, sorry, that MIRI covers. 
Um, but Spitzer was a tiny telescope. Uh, and so with uh, the, the jump in size from Spitzer to a six and a half meter web with having that wavelength coverage, the jump in both uh, the, the resolution and the detail that we're going to be able to see and the depth to which we can go is um, is, is huge. And so we are, you know, uh, almost certainly that, you know, some of our, the data that we get in the first few years will be really groundbreaking. Um, certainly in exoplanets, but also, for example, uh, for Webb, the, the deep fields that will be taken quite early on um, with the Hubble Space Telescope, the deep fields uh, have been some of the most sort of groundbreaking and iconic images that were produced with the telescope. Uh, and we'll be doing similar observations uh, with Webb I like that. I understand the Webb can, can see earlier into the universe, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So uh, the light from distant galaxies gets stretched to longer wavelengths due to the expansion of the universe, and that's what we call the redshift. Um, so the the light that stars in galaxies emit gets kind of more and more pushed into the infrared the further back um, into the history of the universe that we look or the further away the galaxies are. And with the Hubble Space Telescope, we have really, you know, that capability into the infrared was has been pushed, but we've really kind of got to the, the limit of how far Hubble is like technically able to um, probe in uh, back in time and in distance in the universe. Uh, and Webb is really picking up. And that was a big driver for having Webb as an infrared telescope is that it's going to be able to probe further back and see even more distant galaxies. And this is a part of the history of the universe that um, yeah, we kind of have all these models of what how these galaxies, these very first generations of galaxies would have formed, what they might look like. But we really don't have a lot of information uh, about, about them uh, specifically. And so, you know, this is exactly what kind of web was designed also to do. And so, uh, you know, we're almost certain to get like some fantastic data. And um, and I'm also excited to see like the new things it's going to show us that, you know, we're going to look at it and go, this what is unexpected. Hell? What is this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And as, you know, as someone who's kind of uh, on the instrument telescope building side of things in astronomy you know that's something that i find like absolutely fascinating all the the discoveries that were never expected um yeah, and the hubble deep field is in that category as well it showed a lot of very new things and created this whole new area of research basically in the timeline that the james webb will be able to observe maybe maybe ask uh, kai maybe you can help me i'm trying to see how to phrase this um what do we expect to see? What would be the in what state would the universe be in that moment that we are looking at with the James Webb? It's in a toddler to a baby stage, and the universe is about 14 billion years old. And Hubble was able to look back almost to half a billion years after the Big Bang, so about one thirtieth of its present age. But um, Hubble, as Sarah explained pretty well, had its limits. So what Hubble basically showed us early on was the brightest things that were there because the fainter things or the whole picture of everything that was there you could not see. It's almost like you're out in a summer night, you're looking at a swarm of fireflies and you see light dots and only after you switch on web you realize, oh, there's a firefly on the dot of light. And that's what we expect is going to happen more or less. So um, 
Sarah said that uh, there are models, there are assumptions on what happened in the early universe. When did the first galaxies form? When did the first clumps of primordial gas and clumps of dark matter collapse under their own weight and started to form stars out of the dense cold gas that formed then? Uh, which is a really important process and that the theoreticians, the physicists, don't quite understand yet. So it's crucial to understand for our own origins, for the history of the universe, when the first galaxies, when the first stars in these galaxies turned on. And this is the age of the universe. This is this first era, ending the dark age, the first light in the universe that web, uh, we are pretty sure, will take us into. So if I understood correctly, we are, we are looking at that period where the first stars start igniting? Is that what I am? Yes. Yep. Uh, I think it's one of the big hopes, but people are rather confident Looking at the galaxies that Hubble saw, they are in the toddler stage, about 700 million years after the Big Bang, they already have relatively old stars. So we know that the stars must have formed a couple hundred million years earlier, maybe already 200 million years after the Big Bang, which is interesting because the universe was originally rather even. And only the tiny inequalities in density made the matter clump and form structure. And this must have happened really, easy, really easily, really quickly to allow the early formation of galaxies. People are rather thrilled to find out when and how the first, the first galaxies and the first stars and them turned on. Another thing uh, are, of course, black holes. We also have no idea at this point when the black holes, and they are really important parts of the universe. Uh, every big galaxy has a major black hole at its center. We do not know yet how the seed black holes, the first black holes, uh, were accreting the matter, how they started out. These are all hints that uh, Webb will be able to give us in the early universe. So really it is a, a journey back to the origins where Webb has basically shown us a, a glimpse of what's behind the curtain of his own abilities. And uh, we think Webb will be able to open that curtain for us and open the young universe and give us an, a comprehensive view of how the world started. Is, could, could you, could you, is there an analogy between like the, the James Webb and bit looking into the kind of vastness of space and the, and the hugeness of it all and say something like the Large Hadron Collider looking at the very tiny and really the information that you're getting from both actually kind of helps you, um, I guess, solve some of, some of the physics questions that people have been pondering for the last 50 years. Is, are instruments like this just really important for the physicists therefore to try and work out what the hell is going on because we seem to have been like almost like stalled for a while is is james webb part of that picture yes <laughs> uh webb <laughs> took a quick answer and uh, i'm sure sarah sarah is uh, sarah has has a lot more to say about this but very briefly i mean when we look at the largest structure and what's happening we're always looking at the fundamentals of physics and be it dark energy but also from the uh, from the formation of structure in the in the early universe and from other uh, constraints that are not, not specifically web constraints, the cosmic microwave background that is the state of the universe 300,000 years after the Big Bang gives us, uh, tells us a lot about, uh, about the uh, fabric of the universe on small scales, what particles it must have had. And on very large scales, things like dark energy, uh, things like gravity are being measured by, and, and their actions are measured by telescopes in part web uh, on 
smaller scales because it, it drills deep and small fields very deep. And by other telescopes like the upcoming Euclid uh, or and the Nancy Grace Roman telescope that will map large parts of the universe and see the overall picture on how things move and how things moved over time. Yeah, if I mean, very much what Kai was saying, really, um, you know, I, I would definitely say Webb and and the Large Hadron Collider fall into these sorts of like, you know, huge imagination machines, um, you know, that are that that just have a huge scientific, but also sort of like inspirational value. I mean, there, there are these big fundamental open questions in the universe, which is things like the, the nature of dark matter and the nature of dark energy, which we've really, particularly with dark energy, we've really only like scratched the surface of uh, what is going on with that. Um, and, and yeah, as Kai referred to these other missions, and I think that's that's sort of correct, you know, in um, more on, on the astro side, we have, uh, we have a range of different projects and missions um, like Euclid, like the Roman telescope, like the square kilometer array, like uh, the microwave background uh, uh, projects. Um, I think at this point, we really sort of don't know whether the the, um, the real kind of crux of the answer is more on the kind of particle physics side or on the, uh, on the astrophysics side. So it's an area of research, I think, where these fields work together or have to work together very closely because the answer could come from you know, lots of different directions. So we have people who work in these kinds of real, um, you know, in, in the, the cosmology, uh, cosmology theory, the astroparticle physicists, that's really kind of the bread and butter of their science and, and an area where we really have to work very closely together with our kind of fundamental physics colleagues as well. Now, I, I have I have to be uh, I have to be the bad guy always here, yeah, Matt, because paper. we we have a Hard. time con <laughs> certain time constraints. Um, first, I would like to invite Elsa Montagnon to to join the stage, the virtual stage that we have here today as our next guests. I also have a, a questions for Sarah because um, when I was preparing this session, I read that uh, you are working on science operations. And I was wondering concretely, what is science operations? What what can you tell us about that? Uh, so that covers science operations for you know a mission like Web um, covers covers a, a big range of um, of different different things really. So uh, on the on our immediate horizon is of course the launch and the whole commissioning period, and so uh, and that is something that that's been a big focus of our work in the past two two. Well, you know, several years now, really, where we really uh, define these initial measurements that we need to take to really kind of make sure that we are ready for science and that the instrument works well. So we have to say, like, okay, to test this one aspect of the instrument, we need to look at like this kind of star, do this kind of measurement, and then analyze it in this way. Um, so it's really sort of like quite carefully planned out process. Um, once, so that will take up several months after. Uh, after launch. Once we go into the routine operations, um, kind of where, you know, where we are performing, the web, web is performing observations for astronomers from around the world. Um, the science operations is really kind of, again, monitoring the, you know, the, the health of the instrument and making sure that um, the data remain of excellent quality. So we, we you know, it, it involves some um, you know, monitoring data quality, doing ca more calibration types of work. Um, it also uh, involves, you know, supporting the users of web. So making sure that they um, get their data in 
in the right form. They're able to access it. They understand what to do. So it's, it's, there's an aspect of kind of the user support in there as well. Um, and also continuing to kind of push, push forward with what we can do with web. It's like, okay, if we, you know, uh, for different kinds of science or we see like, you know, to do this particular type of observation, it would be better to do our detector readouts in a slightly different way. So let's see if we can make that happen. Um, it's, it's, it's a hugely varied job and it's one of the reasons that I really enjoy it as well, because as it kind of touches on, on lots of different aspects of the mission. Yeah, it does okay, look very uh, cool. <laughs> very cool indeed. indeed. My my hat definitely goes off to my colleagues doing that. It is a monumental task getting all of that organized. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. I don't know, Matt, if you have any closing questions. Well, no, I, 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 maybe just we'll only take one sentence. Is if the large if the Large Hadron Collider had the Higgs boson, what is what is the Higgs boson equivalent for James Webb? <laughs> for Sarah, <Ooh. laughs> that's a really good question. Or is that, or is that, or is that, or is that too? Or doesn't it have one? Doesn't it have a Higgs boson? Life in other planets. I mean, I think the long, I think the long answer is like there is like a fundamental difference yeah. between yeah. how why the LHC was built and why Webb was built. So that's the kind you know we can go into all the kinds of details of that. I would say um, the uh, the the. It's not maybe not a single Higgs boson, but I think there is a short list of things, and uh, that would be things like the very first, um, you know, generation of galaxies in the early universe, and um, you know, kind of biosignatures in exoplanet atmospheres. I would put on that list as well. Fab. The interplanetary podcast is alive. There we go, Julio. By the time we got to the final part of that day, I was very tired. Well, let's just say let's just say that I fell asleep really quickly that evening <laughs> because I had spent also the night before bringing all my equipment to this special room where we recorded, then um, uh, dismantling everything, taking it home, and yeah, I fell asleep super quickly and I was exhausted, but totally worth it. Yeah, it's, it's this thing with the ESA Open Day. Those that work on it, we are all volunteers. It's not, mm. you know, it's a weekend. We do it during the weekend, but these people working at ESA and, you know, the other organizations that join us for this event, we are so passionate and motivated by what we do that, yes, let's also, the, the moment we can do a little bit more outreach and showing the community what we do, let's go for it. Even if it takes a weekend. Yeah, well, well done, ESA, because... Open days are absolutely genius, and Easter itself is absolutely awesome. This just goes to show what people can do together. Don't you think? It's like very well, started sounding like Alan Partridge, but but I, but I actually yeah. meant it. <laughs> yeah, but that is the whole point of ESA, right? The yeah, whole yeah. point of ESA is doing these these projects that not one country can do on its on its own. And oh that's, God, yeah. Yeah, there's that's where we have Ariane. That's where we have uh, all these incredible scientific missions like JUICE that we will launch uh, on mm. Ariane 5, I think, next year. Don't quote me on that. I, I really don't don't remember if it's next year or, or when. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, mission to Jupiter moons. Yep. What, else, uh, so what else can you want? If you want to listen to more of Kate Underhill, by the way, it's episode 196. Indeed, indeed. You should definitely listen to episode 218 at some point this week. Why is that? Because 
Matthias Mara is the guest on that one, and he's and going, who is Matthias Maurer? He is ESA's astronaut, German, who's going up to the ISS next week, hopefully on SpaceX Crew Three. Yeah, that is that is the launch to watch this weekend. Yeah. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> VA two fifty five was last weekend. Now we have Matthias next weekend. Um, yeah, remember back, remember back back when weekends were nice and relaxing, and mm. you're you're not biting your nails on yeah. a rocket launch. No, yeah. you've got another. You've got another one. This is super stressful. So yeah, this is Raja Chari, Thomas Marshburn, Kayla Barron, and Matthias Mara going up on SpaceX three, docking yeah, at Harmony and, Port. And- there and you, I, you keep saying Matthias. Uh, I, no, you Matthias. say Matthias. Ah! I say Matthias. It is Matthias. You say I tomato. See, I say tomato. It's, it's, do you know why I keep saying Matthias? Because there used to be a famous tennis player called Matthias, but I think it might have been his surname or maybe a football player. Is it a football? <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I can't remember. But Matthias, yeah. Well, I mean, he is the astronaut I had the chance to work closest to within ESA. Uh, we went together to to Kourou for some for one one trip. Um yeah and the fact that he spent time in Argentina I, I feel very connected with him um, and and this is the the launch of a European astronaut that I think I'm the most excited about. So I'm oh, yeah. looking forward to other one. Obviously I have nothing to do with this launch in that's coming. It's mm-hmm. a, it's it's on a it's a NASA launch on a on a on a Fal- on SpaceX Falcon rocket, um, but it's it's just always well and Mat- incredible Mat- to watch someone you know go to space. Yeah, Matthias I mean, is definitely one of the nicest people I've ever met, and what what he's he's really inspirational. Genuinely, I came away from our chat so happy. It's definitely worth listening to that podcast again. So so down to earth, so yeah. humble. What what a legend! <laughs> he's going yeah, literally. To, he's I, I going. He's going to International Space Station for what? Half a year. Mm. I don't know the length of his mission, but half a year, let's say. And he's bound and, to do uh, something really cool as well because he's he's proper brainy, as well. <laughs> he's proper good on material well, sciences. I, I, I would I would argue that all ESA astronauts <laughs> are brainy. <laughs> Yeah, but not I would, every, I would not, even go not to everyone. Not everyone going into space recently. I would even go to that all modern uh, astronauts that at least are hired by a space agency are brainy. Mm. We're not back. We're not any longer in the right stuff days. Mm. No, true, true. There was more They're how well you could right. pilot a Dif- test jet, a, a, a jet plane. Mm. So yeah, lots. I mean, if you are a science, if you are an astronaut today, uh, let's say going on these mm. professional flights, yeah, you you are you you have to be good in, in academic aspects as well, right? Yeah, and but you know, Tim Peake can fly a pretty. He's a pretty decent pilot, I've heard. <laughs> he's a, like, a test pilot. He can't be bad. Um, Julio, what are you doing for the rest? What are you doing for the rest of the week? Are you, are you having a, a, a nice week this week, a, a non-stressful week? I hope it's a quiet week, but uh, yeah, what is? We are just Monday. This is to, this is Monday. Who knows what surprise, <laughs> what surprises we will get? 
Um, I, I hope to get a little bit more insight on what's going on in the clean room for James Webb. Not not being in Kuru, it's not like I, I can just pop by and, and have a look. Uh, but I love to hear more on what's going on uh, there. Um, I, preparations are ongoing for a few more launches. The Before the Ariane 5 launch, I think there should be at least a Vega launch. And... I think, let me double check, but I think we also have an upcoming launch um, for Soyuz, which by the way, uh, another thing that happened this last week, is it's an anniversary of uh, Soyuz launching from Kourou from the spaceport, yeah, 10 mm. years mm. since that project uh, started, the launch um, 10 years ago with oh, the wow. Galileo satellites. Oh, by the cool. way, and and by the way, the first Galileo satellites go into space, the first proper ones, not the, there were some uh, demonstration missions before that, mm. but the first proper ones 10 years ago. Anyway, Matt, how was your week? Tell me. Well, yeah, I, 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 I've got a reasonably easy week this week because I've taken a week off work, but it's going to be full on. I've got so much stuff to do, Julio, life catching up on stuff. Um. Well, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes you cannot keep up with everything, and it's okay. No, exactly. It's okay to choose priorities, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, is that it? Shall we? Shall we say goodbye to the podcast? No. Shall we just keep on going forever? We just keep on going. <laughs> yes. No, I, I refuse. Bye, bye, podcast. Ciao, ciao.